in the bosom of one of those spacious coves which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson at the broad expansion of the river denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators the Tappan Zee, and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed, there lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country, from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather lap of land among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I wandered into it at noontime when all nature is peculiarly quiet and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat, whither I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley." From the listless repose of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants, who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by the name of Sleepy Hollow, and its rustic lads are called the Sleepy Hollow Boys throughout all the neighboring country. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. Some say that the place was bewitched by a high German doctor during the early days of the settlement. Others, that an old Indian chief, the prophet or wizard of his tribe, held his powwows there before the country was discovered by Master Hendrick Hudson. Certain it is, the place still continues under the sway of some witching power that holds a spell over the minds of the good people, causing them to walk in a continual reverie. They are given to all kinds of marvelous beliefs, are subject to trances and visions, and frequently see strange sights and hear music and voices in the air. The whole neighborhood abounds with local tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. Stars shoot and meteors glare oftener across the valley than in any other part of the country, and the nightmare, with her whole ninefold, seems to make it the favorite scene of her gambols. The dominant spirit, however, that haunts this enchanted region and seems to be commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air is the apparition of a figure on horseback without a head. Washington Irving, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe we'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, 
From herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders, the list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same, or maybe you long to. This episode is the second in a two-part about the Hudson River Valley. While this one was recorded first, I actually put out the other episode, which is about the Hudson River School painters first. Um, And I wanted to save this one to be a little bit closer to Halloween. And I almost think that this episode should be the Halloween special, but I wanted to keep it next to the other Hudson episode. So here we have it. And this episode is one of my all-time favorites, without a doubt. Our guest is Jonathan Cruck, and he is a master storyteller renowned for his uh, solo performances of The Christmas Carol and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He is hands down one of the one of my favorite guests that we've had on the podcast. This episode is hands down one of my favorites. I mean, it is nonstop, incredibly enchanting and whimsical and haunting lore and history about the region. And um, we're, you're, this episode, you're going to hear about um, everything from Native American creation myths to imps to a historical witch to, to the history behind the legend of Sleepy Hollow, ghost stories. It's, this one is just incredible. Jonathan has written two books, Legends and Lore of the Hudson Highlands and Legends and Lore of Sleepy Hollow and the Hudson Valley. If you'd like to buy either of those, um, you can find them on Jonathan's website, which is jonathancruck.com. I'll put a link in there. They're also available on Amazon, but he would appreciate if you could go through his website. Um, Let's see. As a master storyteller and a full-time storyteller as his vocation and occupation, uh, he does a lot of um, teaching and performances and events for school kids. And that's awesome. And he is you can feel when you're listening to him how, how the wonder and the um, the wonder with with which he brings to these stories, you can just see how a, a kid would be so enraptured by it. But also, that makes me think, I've been thinking about this a lot, why have folk tales, fairy tales, and even mythology been relegated to children? Like, this is so strange to me. And uh, it's made me think about, like, the Grimm's fairy tales. So the Grimm's, the brothers, they went around Germany and collected fairy tales. And um, from what I gather, I did a little reading this morning, it was for the purpose of making a children's book. But when they put it out, they were criticized because it was so dark because they're going around just asking, you know, people in the woods and on farms their stories. And these tales were just incredibly dark. Some of them were sexual. Some of them were so dark about mothers that, you know, would devour their children. It was too much for Victorian times. And they actually, that's why a reoccurring theme is the stepmother because it was too intense that the mother could be so cruel in these fairy tales. 
And thinking about this and how, I guess, Western culture has um, made these stories into kids' stories, um, I, I can't remember where I came across this idea. It, it was either Joseph Campbell or most likely it was Carl Jung who studied, of course, the unconscious and studied, um, you know, tribes, native tribes. Um, I'm not sure where I picked up this idea, but it was something along the lines of that certain tribes maybe in the Amazon, um, you know, maybe in Africa or whatever, the unconscious, um, the idea of an evil spirit in the woods, uh, in the jungle, is just as real, just as day-to-day life as the enemy from another tribe. So the unconscious, there's no making this material and belittling this material into making it, oh, these are just fun stories for kids. They were living inside of it. And I guess I'm kind of hoping that in the Western world, in our modern world, that we can kind of come back into seeing these stories, of course, as um, enthralling and entertaining, but also as real. I mean, of course, uh, Carl Jung and then Um, One of his students, um, incredible woman, Marie-Louise von Franz, she was constantly studying fairy tales and the the themes and the, she would study them like she would study a, um, an, and an an analysand, which means like uh, someone coming to therapy, to dream therapy, she would study fairy tales in the same way that she would study, um, someone coming for therapy's dreams. So she would study the material in the fairy tales as important unconscious material that, you know, like we talked about with Jonathan, these themes, so many themes in mythology, so many themes in fairy tales and folklore repeat across civilizations and repeat across through time. And perhaps as if these stories are asking us to take them seriously. While Jonathan was telling the legend of the imp of Dundenberg, which has everything to do with wind in the Hudson River Valley, sitting recording this on the backyard of an Airbnb I was staying at, which was tucked away down five minutes down a gravel road with, against a huge rock wall that attached to the Appalachian Trail, heavily wooded, very, very quiet. As Jonathan was telling the tale, all the trees started swirling with wind, literally as if the story was calling the wind into existence. And Jonathan mentions it, but um, I did add sound effects to that story. But the wind truly was coming alive during the story. Anyways, we have about three more podcasts scheduled before Halloween. And I haven't recorded any, so I don't want to cross any fingers. My goal is that this one and the next three will all be Halloween related. I'm not going to say anything more about it because every time I do, I jinx it. But my goal is to keep the Halloween vibe going. So with that, let's get into this incredible episode with master storyteller, Jonathan Crock. The locale we're in is known as the Hudson Highlands, 
Though many people think they don't know about it, really they do. They stand, I like to think of them as like, um, you know, sentinels around the northern and kind of western border of New York City, about 50, 60 miles north. They're rustically beautiful. They're smooth, rounded, ancient mountains, you know, maybe half a billion years old. Mm. So they're great-grandfathers to the, um, the Appalachians here and certainly the Rockies. And they once stood as majestic and high as the Himalayans, but during the Ice Age, which ended, you know, in a way kind of abruptly 13,000 years ago when a huge ice dam between Storm King and Breakneck Ridge broke and let all of the water long built up behind it rush into the Atlantic Ocean, it, that, that cataclysm is what really formed the highlands. And only a stolid uh, bit of granite near what's now West Point diverted the Hudson from flowing straight on into the uh, Atlantic. And this place is filled not just with um, beautiful ancient oaks and tulips and maple trees and ferns and goldenrod and mm. um, creatures like, you know, deer and raccoon and even, you know, a, now beaver and bear are coming back a bit. I wanted to ask if the bear was here. Yes, they, they are. They're not as prevalent as they are on the other side, the west side of the river, but they do kind of come, every year there's usually a report around here. We're out on Old Albany Post Road, you know, established um, oh, around 1700 or so, but um, bear do come prowling around and investigating, you know, usually in the spring. And then they kind of, kind of like so many things here, they kind of vanish until mm. awakened again. This is also... So I, I do a lot of hunting and... Um, the feeling that I've gotten from spending huge amounts of time sitting in the woods is that animals, like you're saying, are like ghosts. Like ah. they just will, you know, they will, you'll see them for a second and then they vanish. And it's just like, where are all these things living? All these bobcats, you know, you don't see oh, anything. Yeah. You know, where I live, we got otters, mink. I mean, no one, a lot of people you talk to don't even know that those things, that those creatures exist in our area. They 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 do. And they they are so elusive. You know, you mentioned Bobcat. They're one of my favorites mm. around here. And uh, I've, I have um, on, on rare occasions seen them. Once a few years ago, near where I live, I saw a mother Bobcat carrying her, I don't know whether they're called kits or cubs, but she oh my God. noticed that I, I was watching and, uh, and she and the kits froze. And I, of course, took out a, my, my cell phone and took a picture, but mm. you couldn't even find them like a ghost in the oh, photo. They, bl they blended in 100%. so beautifully. It was just a little bit of a I've seen miracle. One, so I've seen one very close up in my uh, outdoorsman adventures. And um, I couldn't even see the entire bobcat while I'm mm. looking, while I'm feet away looking at it. Like it, I could see its head and its body was just blended into the landscape Yeah, from feet away. I mean, it's astonishing. It, it is astonishing. And the thing that um, has been really, again, enchanting regarding animals here of late are reports of mountain lions no. here. Although, you know, <laughs> scientists argue 
they require, you know, five miles of land, lots of solitude, and that the last one vanished, you know, from the Catskills, let alone here in the Highlands back in the 1930s. Hmm. But um, I've had people emphatic about saying they saw one running across a road. Hmm. And there was one that got killed in Connecticut yes. a few years ago. Yep. So it's possible one strayed here, but we don't, who's we, the the, the, the bi- biologists mm-hmm. don't think that any are actually inhabiting here, but people have said, yes, I saw the long tail because people do mm-hmm. notice bobcats darting across the road with the short tail. Mm-hmm. We don't really see lynx. They're more far more rare and they're in the Adirondacks, but oh, not they are. here in the Highlands. In New York yes. State, there's lynx. In New York State, wow, they are. Wow, I didn't yeah. know that. Incredible. But, but they, you know, until one is really well documented, they're almost like Sasquatch. And there's been mm-hmm. reports too of Sasquatch right, you know, not too far from where we are sitting, you know, maybe, you know, supposedly swimming across the Hudson River no crossing, <laughs> going to Garrison's Landing, maybe having a beer at Dolly's and then Ooh. moving on. That's kind of how it, it goes there. But um, wow. But if but but what it shows is how the Highlands holds these different mysteries and intriguing stories. And well, you bring up a great point because I was telling you before the podcast, I love all this stuff. And you just said the right word, which is mystery. Yeah. It's like, I love the mystery of animals. I love the mystery of folklore. I love mystery of history. You know, I just, the mystery is what's so damn interesting to me. Oh, it is. And so anyways, I'm here um, because we're here for a wedding and we did the weddings in Manhattan, which is yeah. about an hour and 20 minutes. About, yes. And we are in the Hudson River Valley. We're close to Cold Spring. And when I lived in New York City, this was my favorite place to come. I probably came once every month or two months. Uh-huh. You know, I came here all the time with friends to go hiking in the state parks. Um, came, I mean, for the 10 years that I was trying to be a filmmaker, I would come up here to location scout over and over again, visiting all the historical homes, visiting the waterfalls. And so I absolutely love the Hudson River Valley. And um, you are a master story. So I knew I was coming up for this wedding and I was like, you know, I'm really on a kick with folklore. And I was like, I need to find someone to talk about Hudson River Valley folklore. Found you online. You are renowned as a master storyteller that um, uh, does recreates the story of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yes. I want to hear about that. And you've also written two or more books about the local lore. So that is what we're going to get into Great. today. And I'm so pumped. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't even really know where to start, but... Oh, there's, um, well, I, I'll just tell very briefly a version of the oldest uh, legend, and I say legend because it has an element of truth in it. It's really a creation myth. Ages ago, when it was winter, the native folk here would tell tales. Mm. They often spoke about a slumbering giant who had slept for so long a lake formed against his body. And the people were drawn to the lake because of the animals, because of the, the healing herbs that grew, because of the, uh, the, the, the three sisters, corn, bean, and squash, took to the soil here. And they always were grateful, gave thanks, told stories, until eventually they uh, began to forget about the giant as 
the trees and the, you know, the animals kind of began to overwhelm the slumbering, uh, you know, gargantuan form. And they then neglected to give this giant thanks or to tell his stories. And the poor heartbroken entity then stood up and let go of that lake and it rushed and roared into the ocean and many of the people were, you know, obliterated along with part of the landscape. But what the giant left was a living, moving legacy in the form of what they called, what the native folk called, the river that flows both ways, hmm. sometimes pronounced Mahikanituk. And it continues to flow both ways today because it's what we now call the Hudson River. The giant was a melting glacier, so that's where the truth of the legend lies. Wow. And the river flowing both ways occurs because of the tides of the ocean pushing into the river. So the Hudson is a fjord, a drowned river, an arm of the sea that continues to flow back and forth even unto this day. And the native peoples, and there's still, you know, there's still a, 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 a tribe, the Ramapo Mountain people that are in the vicinity, mm. uh, say, if you take care of the river by doing things like we're doing, mm. telling and listening to stories of it, it will take care of you. It'll provide everything from recreation to refreshment to, you know, a way to travel. So, that, in essence, is um, the creation of the Hudson River. Incredible. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah. And I'm blown away when old legends, or no, not legends, like prehistoric myths. Yeah. When they have touched on what we later find as a scientific truth, exactly. like you just said with the glacier. Exactly. That's what's There's so many examples of that, and that blows yeah. me away. It's a beautiful story, and because... You know, with that, it, it doesn't have the, it, it tells it in terms of a story rather than mm. science, but it's mm. based totally in science. And many of the stories around here reflect the, the feel of the landscape too. You know, before um, we officially began, we talked a little bit about one of my favorite stories from not too far from here. I call it the, the legend of Manteo's Fall. Yeah. <gasps> Okay. And yes, that, yes. Okay, wait. <laughs> uh, you're going to tell it, not me. Yes. You're going to tell it. But, but I'm going to pre... I'm going to do preface. a pre... Yeah, preface. Yeah. So, like I said, I would come up to the Hudson River Valley and spend insane amount of time during college um, location scouting. Yeah. And I would find the most incredible places. And one of these places was what you're about to say, Indian Brook Falls, or you have another yes, name Yes, it's for on it. Indian, Indian Brook Road. Is, and, and it's Indian... So yeah, Indian... I've yeah. filmed my college thesis film, a section of it down there. I filmed part of a music video down there. I've swam in there a million times. I've gone there with friends. And when I found it, it was through a book of um, regional or New York State's waterfalls. And the the little legend that you're about to tell is- It's mentioned. It's mentioned. Yeah. And, the, and you're going to go ahead and tell it. But the idea of swimming, I'll let you tell it first and then yeah. I'll comment. There are many- stories concerning Henry Hudson and why he explored, what happened to him, how he defied the Dutch East India Company. And instead of going around to get fur 
from Russia through the, uh, you know, sailing above Siberia, he ended up coming around here. He had charts showing that there could be the Northwest Passage through North America to bring him quickly to the promised lands of silk and gold and fur of China. But while looking for that, he found himself in this river that flows both ways. And even though the Tapan Sea deceived him into thinking, oh, look at this glorious sea, it's so wide, there's every kind of fish, every kind of fowl, there's, there's dolphin and whale out here. Yes, this is, we're going to be in China in no time. But in, you know, a few months, a few weeks, the water gave way and he had to return and he looked upon the shore just a little north of the highlands and some of his men discovered wild grapes. They go ashore to gather the grapes and there's a gathering of native people and their old ladies have had dreams of these strange beings who have crossed the salty waters whose skin is colored like the snow and they might they they may be good for trade but they're also very dangerous and the native folk in some of the stories don't know whether they are spirits or manitous or animals because they have hair on their faces um, like an animal has hair on their face and they're wearing peculiar clothes so they debate so they decide rather than debate why don't we just scare these things off by making a lot of noise shooting a lot of arrows and in doing that an arrow manages to find its way into the leg of one of Hudson's crewmen and he tells his men to go and the native people are afraid to touch him. They don't know whether he's sick um, or whether he's just like them, flesh and blood and bleeding. Well, the chieftain's daughter, um, Venteo, decides to take charge and she treats him. And then the rest of the tribe puts him, Jacob Esvan Horan, under her jurisdiction, her care. And the women don't want him out farming in the fields. The men don't want him hunting. So she takes him to little streams and he creates with her fishing wares to trap the fish. And eventually they become friendly and they fall in love until his homesickness, maybe a few years later, overwhelms. And when he sees a fishing vessel out in the the river that flows both ways, he in his homesickness, runs down, jumps into the water, swims to the vessel, and can't look back, can't listen to his beloved's cries. And she is utterly and completely a broken woman. So she figures, you know, why carry on in this body? So she throws her body over the falls and lets her spirit inhabit that fall. And uh, Van Horen just vanishes across the ocean and she remains a protective spirit at what is now the waterfall at Indian Brook, sometimes called Manteo's Fall. There used to be a hotel in Cold Spring by the same name. And when you visit, the native people find, you know, initially found it a very peaceful presence. They would offer up prayers and the 
unrequited love, I guess, of Manteo moved the spirit of Manteo to help grant the wishes of those who would come to those falls. And you, going to hike, would feel that serenity, that peacefulness, and that mystery that uh, is presided over by the spirit of this, you know, native maiden, you know, of Indian Brook. So there that version, the story. That version <laughs> is a million times better than the, than the like three sentences <laughs> in the guidebook. Well, <laughs> well, that's my goal in life is to, I, I love that the guidebooks will include these stories, but to show the, you know, the, the majesty, the mystery, mm-hmm. the, the beauty, you know, and it's the melancholy of these ancient stories. Man, and I mean, I'm going to blow some smoke up your rear yeah. end, but that you're an incredible storyteller. Well, thank you I mean, I much. Was, I was locked in on that one. <laughs> well, may I just, um, I have to qualify or just give kind of, as I will a little later with the Headless Horseman, kind of an origin story. I mean, in the journal of Robert Jewett, who was Henry, kind of like Henry Hudson's first mate, he really doesn't mention um this story in particular. He does say that they went to shore and they probably, they did gather fresh fruit hmm. and all. Um, they do mention losing a fellow by the name of John Coleman hmm. um, down near Staten Island, who, who, you know, for various reasons, took an arrow through the neck. Um, my friend Evan Pritchard, a Native American scholar, says it was probably because Coleman and his little exploring vessel from the Half Moon got too close to what was the Native Americans' mint, you know, where they processed uh, clamshells and turned them into wampum. But the, the, so the story that I just told may be kind of, it has kind of a 19th century Victorian origin. But the thing is, is that even though the story may have been a fabrication, Mm. it shows the feel of, the relationship between the natives and the early European mm. settlers mm, mm, mm. and the demise of the native people and the sense that there are, there is something still lingering here of the native people in kind of a, you know, if you will, a spirit realm. And even if it's just energetic, even if the, the you know, the a manifestation of the ghost may not get seen if you go to Indian Brook, you'll certainly feel, mm-hmm. again, that, serenity when you're there. Well, what's so incredible to me is, um, you know, it's one thing, you know, I'm in Virginia. So it's one thing to walk across like the Manassas battlefield and to feel, I mean, I've had some insane, I had one super intense ghost experience on the Manassas battlefield, Uh my sister at twilight in like December. Um, It's one thing to like, to be on a big landscape where you're feeling the presence of history, but to be in like a tiny waterfall pool yeah, and be like, this story is in this pool. Yeah, it's a like, small waterfall, whew, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Chilling, haunting. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I always contend every hill and hollow here in the mm. highlands holds a story. And I also, um, you know, hold forth the highlands nurtured four different revolutions. That's really the premise of my book. Here we have... Um, the kind of, uh, it was central during the American Revolution for various reasons, not just because of the Battle of Stony Point or the Battle of the Hudson Highlands, but this is where a great chain got stretched to prevent the British, a great naval power, from dividing the colonies in Mm. two. 
they always said the Hudson was the key to the revolution, and they, with George Washington, John Adams, and the British general, gentleman Johnny Burgoyne, but the Highlands were the lock, and not far where we're sitting when they when they, they hid cannon here from the British during the Battle of the Highlands, it proves this was the lock. So there was that great chain. And the revolution here, we also had um, the treason of the darkest die, as Washington called it, where um, Benedict Arnold tried to surrender America's strongest fortress, West Point, to the British. Wow. Have Washington captured, probably hanged. And it, you know, he gave these plans to West Point to... Major John Andre, a dashing British officer who dashing down to get to British lines in near New York City, got caught mm. in Sleepy Hollow, found mm. out to have the plans. And then later he was, after a fair trial, you know, hanged over an old Tapan, New Jersey. So if that had gone a little differently, the Americans would have lost the revolution. Mm. Um, there was also the launching, really, of the Industrial Revolution, mm. you know, this, right up... When, when Robert Fulton's steamboat came chugging through in August of 1807, a farmer from Fishgill in Cold Spring looked out and saw this maniacal figure jumping around singing Scottish folk songs. It was Fulton. And he was like, oh my God, there's a devil driving a sawmill. And the sawmill was, of course, this thing belching with smoke, the steam engine. Mm. And, um, and then just a few years later, when the West Point foundry got built here to make, you know, cannon and other metal goods, it, it, you know, they were revolutionary there because they set up really early assembly lines mm. at the West Point foundry. Here we launched two at around the same time. Thomas Cole, this British artist who's yep. kind of like you, he was seeking um, the the beauty of the wilderness and the stories herein and the animals. And he came here and he, you know, one of his first nights after leaving New York City was in the Highlands where he sat and played his flute and wrote in his journal. And then he began to paint a wild landscape mm. showing almost no evidence of humanity. And yes. that launched another revolution in the painting. The Hudson River School. The Hudson River School. The next podcast yeah. I'm, I'm interviewing, hopefully, the guy who made, just made a documentary about it, Vin something, he did a documentary about uh, the Hudson School. Oh, well, yes. here, because, here it's where it, got, where it began. Yes, and what seems interesting is their theme is like capturing like God in the majesty of yes. these landscapes. Yes, that's what they wanted to reflect. And I mm -hmm. like to think of Thomas Cole as being like the, the John the Baptist of mm. the Hudson River School later, Frederick Church was mm -hmm. more of the kind of ultimate guy with, mm -hmm. you know, painting these landscapes all over the world. And, uh, and finally, the, a revolution occurred in the 60s here when Con Edison, ready to, after a power outage, build a kind of reservoir power plant, carving it out of the face of old Storm King Mountain. And mm. local residents, one from right up the road here, um, the Saunders family, along with Pete Seeger and Franny Reese and mm. and even the likes of Robert Boyle, rose up to prevent that from happening. Mm. And it set a legal precedent where the Supreme Court agreed you when you went to alter the landscape, you 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 had to consider more than just what the economic good or bad might be. You mm. had to consider the legacy, mm. the lore, mm. the and also 
you know, what other residual damages might be done. And so that precedent, you know, got established here in the Hudson Highlands. And Incredible. It was, it's used, you know, all over, not just the country, but in other Incredible. parts of the world. Incredible. To, to take it back to the Native Americans that were here, I saw that you have um, recorded imp stories. Yes. Now, are the imps part of Native American folklore? They they are. They're, they're um, really imp. The imps of Dunderberg are kind of the, the a Dutch version of a native description of a local phenomenon. And Washington Irving really picked up on it, too. And very briefly, it's one of my favorite all-time stories of the, the Highlands, even of, of just of everything, because... Um, it concerns usually a uh, kind of a defiant sloop skipper sailing up the river. And sloops were kind of Dutch-designed vessels from the late 17, early 1800s with a movable keelboard and three kind of unique sails. And the one up top was shaped kind of like a, kind of like a little triangle, which was like the tricorn hat of the late 1700s. So put that under your hat as I kind of launch into the story. Up the river sails this defiant sloop skipper, and when he comes upon, he sails through the Tappanzee, goes by the Palisades, and in those days, you'd get to Albany in record time would be about 48 hours. And the only way you could do it is if you zigzagged, you would go back and forth and you would make it to one of 14 different reaches marking the river. And he gets through several at the beginning. And then he's entering into these highlands where the mountains rise up, you know, rather steeply from the river and upstep you know, some of his crew, you'd have four or five, and down below there'd be people sailing from New York City to Albany. Maybe there'd be some goods, cloth or rum or something to deliver from the city to Albany. And so up comes the crew, and I imagine that they, not just imagine, but they did, they spoke a lot of Dutch. You know, skipper is Dutch, and sloop is Dutch, and they would say something like, Oh, skipper, you's got to tip your hat. What are you talking about? You got, we're coming into the Hudson Islands. You don't tip your hat. Forgive my, you know, poor kind of Brooklyn accent, but it's, I think, rooted in the Dutch. And the skipper says, why? Damn imps. They're going to sink this ship at World's End. What? Oh, I see on the chart, World's End. Off of West Point. That's what we're talking about. Tip your hat or else we're going down. But the skipper refuses to tip his hat. And out on the river, there's kind of a clarion call and mists begin to rise from the river and if you look at them quick you'll think it's just a fog but if you look carefully into the mists on the Hudson you can sometimes see what seem to be faces of lost souls of those who have lost their lives on the river and they gather round the here of Dunderberg, the master of Dunderberg, a a spirit called the, a dwerg, which means like elf. And again, I'll sound his trumpet. And rising from the mists come these imps who are at once elfish and ghostly. 
They grab hold of gusts of wind and get tumbled head over heels above Dunderberg beyond the pin jib and the timp and bear mountain and bald mountain and crow nest until they come into the shadow of the of old storm king or as the Dutch called it uh, butter butterberg and there dwells a kind of witch who conjures up thunderstorms and some say she sends them out by shaking her apron and the imps grab hold of the storms and they send it down upon like cannon fire upon the sloop where the skipper refuses to tip his hat and in the midst of this storm um, you know they called for help from St. Nicholas but the imps uh, you know ignored that because they didn't care for this and then at the end after they've kind of battered and beaten the vessel around uh, one of the imps the, the Dwerk, the, the hero of Dunderberg, gives a final blast. Do 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 do. It's kind of like a little bit of a Bronx cheer. And it tears off the skipper's tri corner hat and sends it sailing up the Hudson River. Now, Washington Irving contends the imps put the hat on a church steeple up near Kingston, New York, the old Dutch church there. And the hat haunted the church for, for, for years and years. But I have some evidence it may have been placed on a different church in New Hamburg, the church of the one to whom they were praying to rid themselves of the imps, and that is Sinterklaas, or Saint Nicholas. But wherever the hat got placed, it began a tradition on the river. When you sail into the highlands, or steam, or use diesel or maybe even now solar power, you kind of give your give a little tip of the hat there just to make sure you can safely get through those treacherous Hudson Highlands. And finally, again, um, there's the stuff of legend, of truth in the story. The natives first noticed these winds coming down swiftly off the highlands, clashing with the winds right on the river, and they would come so quickly. I notice a wind stirring up here. They contended it wasn't just a mere, you know, a breeze, but there was something other natural, maybe supernatural, stirring up these breezes, and the Dutch were like, oh yeah, these winds come out of nowhere, and sometimes they sink our sloop if we don't tip our hat, which really is to lower the top sail so those additional winds don't sink the ship at world's end and it's called world's end because many a ship did go down there you know during the colonial and early revolutionary era I got three things to say because that is so <laughs> awesome I mean one kind of what we were just saying before these when these ancient stories um have a truth to it yeah. so like when folklore has um a word of wisdom in it incredible like you're saying right there yeah. to lower the to lower the um sail now two things that are coming to mind as you're talking about that one is i just interviewed a waterman in the chesapeake bay and he's an oyster dredger right on a skipjack which is a sail ship and it's a 135 year old ship and um he told a story on the podcast about 
um, going down in a storm where you couldn't wow. see anything. And hearing him tell that story, I've said already on a podcast, but I, um, like, I just was thinking how many people throughout history have gone down with ships uh, and even in a river, you know, yeah. even in a river where you can see land on both sides. It's happened. And I, I had a real revelation with this story. I, I learned it over 30 years ago from a mentor who studied a lot of Native American lore, so much so that even though he's, you know, Russian ancestry, the Native folk um, uh, gave him the name of He Who Stands Firm. Mm. And I thought it was just a story. But after telling it many times, I had the experience where people would come up to me after the show and say, oh my God, you know, that's not just, there are a, a story, there are ghosts out there. I was in, they would say, in my sailboat, a little south of the Bear Mountain Bridge, north of Havistraw, and a storm came out of nowhere. We didn't know where the shore was, just like your friend on the Chesapeake Bay, the Hudson's maybe at that point a mile across, and they didn't know what direction they were going in. God I almighty. had a guy on, on motorboat say that's happened too. So there is uh, truth underlying these things and the stories from the native, the Dutch, mm -hmm. Washington Irving become just a way to put forth that truth about that particular, it's almost like a Saragosso Sea on the Hudson. Oh yeah. These highlands. Um, actually, Sargasso Sea was talked about in one episode uh -huh. because of the gu a guy talking about the eel migration from uh. even streams up here all the way to the Chesapeake Bay and then out to the Sargasso yeah. Sea. But um, another thing that came up when you're telling that story was um, what popped in my head. And I don't, thankfully, crossing fingers, I don't have too much experience, personal experience with this. Um, what came to mind was... Um, what came to mind was what I've seen with, um, well, I'm not trying to belittle the mysterious and the paranormal sure. with that story. Cause I believe in that stuff. I've had tons of weird experiences, but what I found interesting about that also is it's almost like a fable to respect mother nature. Yes. And like, even in watching, I'm thankful that I haven't had a bad experience yet, but like when you watch shows, like there was an incredible, incredible, one of the best shows I've ever seen which is called The Last Alaskans. And it's about yeah. a bunch of families that live in the um, Arctic Wildlife Refuge up in right. Alaska. Barely anyone lives up there. It's like the size of North Carolina or South Carolina and they're trappers and just living off the land. And um, the way that you see them talk about like ice and walking across ice, yeah. it's like with unbelievable respect. Uh. And it's like, you don't mess with mother nature. You tip your hat to mother nature. Oh yeah. And then to juxtapose that, I was watching um, that, a uh, very popular TV show, Alone, which is about the people who film themselves trying to survive for yes. months on end. And um, I'm actually trying to have one of the winners. He's in Virginia. I'm trying to have him on the podcast. Um, but in in one of the seasons, this guy who is this very arrogant fool, um, you know, from Texas, this real, I mean, he just comes across so arrogant, just how he's going to win, older guy, overweight, I'm right. going to win, I'm going to win. And just like kind of a jerk and like very little respect. And he gets kicked off the show mm. in four days. Oh. And you see him on the show, look at a tree and say, I'm going to, because, you know, they got to build their own little huts right. and stuff. So you yeah. got to fell some trees and build your little house or your lean-to or, yeah, or whatever they're called. Something. You know, everybody's doing that on the show, but he looks at the trees and he says like, I'm going to kill you and all your kids. He says something like so stupid. Wow. And then 
on the show, like three days later, he breaks his leg. Oh, just man. walking along the shore. Yeah. And he's walking along like rocks on the water and just falls and breaks his leg. And Amazing. it came to me immediately. I yeah. was like, that's because you just disrespected this exactly. landscape. Exactly. Yeah. You got to yeah. tip your hat. You do. You have to tip your hat. And that hat can take on many different meanings. It's just to show that respect, to be cautious, to be wary, uh, to be <sighs> respectful. And the Hudson um, is very much like that. I mean, in um, the book that inspired Pete Seeger to help, you know, fight against um, Con Ed's plan to kind of deface Storm King Mountain and then helped him really create the Hudson, the, the, the Clearwater Sloop, mm. was a book called Sloops on the Hudson. And there mm. it, it describes the skippers who didn't necessarily tip their hat. They would mm. be sailing down and, um, you know, lines would suddenly begin to blow and they mm. would, you know, one guy by a rope got decapitated. Oh my, it's just that's real? Right out of, off of Little Stony Point in the, I think it was right after the Civil War and even one of the earliest settlers a man named Roger Brett, who married, um, you know, Catherine or Katerina. Um, uh, she was a rombout, I believe. And he was a little bit disrespectful. And uh, one of the, the winds on the Hudson that occur in the Imp of Dunderberg story blew the boom of the sloop and cracked him in the back, knocked him into the Hudson, and he drowned. And this is the er very early 1700s, and people urged... Catherine Brett to leave the area, but and she did for a time, but then came back and established a mill near what's now, you know, Fishgill and Beacon mm. uh, that later became, you know, kind of the uh, the place of growth for all of Dutchess County. Mm. But that, and she also showed respect too, because she had good relationships with the native mm. peoples too, who filled her in on how to, again, you know, show respect for the landscape here. So that is a big part. Now, I think well, you had a third point. Maybe. That, that was it. Okay, but, but But when I interviewed the captain, yeah. he he did say there was there's a, there's a waterman phrase for um, skipjack captains. I think the phrase is off with the boom. Oh. And it's when that boom mast swims yeah. across yeah. Um, the, I don't, what's the term for the deck? The, the deck, It swims maybe. across, it yeah. swings across the deck yes. and knocks crew members over. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, that happens you know, here on the Hudson and that's, you know, these stories give mm. warning. They illustrate those points. And the way the wind started rolling in the trees while you're telling, yeah. right when you started telling that part of the story. I know, it's, it's fascinating. And again, I, you know, I really emphasize how, um, I, I mean, one of the people who contacted me after the Imp of Dunderberg was, you know, a, a local uh, real estate you know, mm -hmm. developer who had a little sailboat and she just said it was an out-of-body experience because everything her husband did who prided himself on being a really good skipper, mm -hmm. the opposite happened. Mm -hmm. So she was really frightened and mm -hmm. wonder, you know, and that's why like Washington Irving, the English, the Dutch settlers, the native folk, you know, she turned, you know, here to me for some explanation of what is happening on the Hudson and these highlands. Okay, so you keep mentioning hearing stories from people. I haven't read your books yet, and we're going to promote those at the end. Are these books you going around and getting stories from people? In some cases, yes. So um, you're a folklorist. I, I am. Yeah, I try to to be. Um, I mean, much, much of it, of course, is turning to 
primary sources as much as possible. And it's been very difficult to track down the original story behind the Imps of Dunderberg. Much mm-hmm. of it is Washington Irving and his, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dietrich Hickerbocker's, you know, History of Old New York. He mentions it with a fellow by na- the name of Dolph Heiliger coming up the river and being bewitched by the imps and all. But there are bits and pieces in native lore. But then the affirming thing comes when people mm. approach and describe, as I've said, getting kind of fairy-led or ghost-bewitched mm. out on the Hudson. <laughs> wow. and, and some of it, too, like the um, the story of the, the Headless Horseman, um, uh, that... Let's get into it. Yeah, that was... So, um, and let's get... Well, first, yeah. um, lay a little... Gra- before you start getting yeah. too into the history and the lore, right. lay a little groundwork on your... Um, how you interact with the story because you tell these... Your, right. Your big thing is you do um, performances yes, that are I, very, very renowned. Yeah, thank you. It's... Um, yeah, I I'm, have long been known for performing The Legend of Sleepy Hollow in Sleepy Hollow, usually at God. the old Dutch church. Now, now, when I lived in New York City and I would come up here to for film, for film locations, you know, I, you know, young, I'm like 21, 20. Like, yeah. I don't... Like, I didn't... So, we, you know, we're driving upstate we drive by Sleepy Hollow and I'm like, is this the Sleepy Hollow? <laughs> you know, I grew up in Virginia, so yeah. I don't I don't know. You're the, wondering. Yeah, I'm like, what is this it? It it is it. And in nineteen ninety-six they changed the name of from North Tarrytown to Sleepy Hollow to 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 promote that legacy. Oh, did it used to be Sleepy Hollow? It used to be North Tarrytown. Oh, even from the from it was Dutch colonists? It, well, in the days of the Dutch, it was uh, probably it was the Dutch probably called it something like Schlafershaven. It was like a secondary harbor. Tarrytown was the main Ooh, harbor, okay. and that's where the farmers, you know, would bring their wheat and have mm. it ground and put on boats for market. And if that got too crowded, they would go up to uh, what in English is Sleepy Hollow. Mm. Um, to you know, it was a secondary, a smaller, a mm. sleepier harbor. And, you know, it's a little bit of a valley, so there'd be a little bit of a mist over it, and that perpetuated or began to advance the story. And there's also mm. local legends, again, from the native people about Dutch settlers mm. with their plows turning over a grave, releasing a spell, oh um, cursing the area, or the presence of uh, a mother, Hulda, who was a uh, an Eastern European woman who had married into a native tribe, and then when her husband died, the tribe returned her to the Europeans, and she was kind of an herbalist, and she wasn't treated quite properly during the revolution and not buried properly at first, so she may have put forth the curse that became, you know, the the curse over Sleepy Hollow. A lot of the listeners are um, through my work, which I'm hired a lot by herbalists, by um, little homesteaders. I'm hired a lot to do a lot of logo work and work for nonprofits that their focus is protecting medicinal plants. So yeah, a lot of the listeners are, are, are aware are into plants and stuff like that for medicinal purposes and have an incredible knowledge of plants. So learning, you know, when I was in the um, Chesapeake Bay, we heard yeah. a story from a living historian about the the witch of Pungo. Ah, Similar. It was yeah. a woman who was um, kind of had a magical vibe. Um, she knew everything about plants. Um, she's an animal whisperer and she got ostracized by her community. Yes. And she was, you know, the weirdo that everybody could scapegoat. And they yes. tried to put all their shit on her. And they basically, she got close to being 
tried as a, right. as no, well, she was tried, but cl- close to being um, executed. Maybe it or, seemed like it was on that direction. Yeah. yeah, they were kind of heading that way with um, Mother Holda, though. She it was really there was, um, you know, people in these little communities were kind of xenophobic. They they mm-hmm. were they were so. When she comes in and she's all, she's a widow, she looks different. She's kind of dressed maybe in, you know, a bit of native type attire. So she took up the practice of becoming the herbalist because people needed that medicinal help. And some stories have it that she would just, if she knew someone was sick, she would just present a bundle, which would have all the curative things they would need. And the people would take it and then they would surreptitiously maybe give her I don't know, an animal skin or a bushel of corn or a few pieces of silver to pay her back. And so that's how she subsisted. Amazing. And I've seen that in documentaries and whatnot, that like um, the healer, healer. often it's a trade, like a gift, gift, not like direct payment. Right, a barter. mm -hmm. Right. And so that's what Mother Hulda did. And and, um, she may have led... British soldiers away from the community and she was a good shot and may have taken a few of them out and then the British <laughs> kind of returned the um, unfortunate favor and killed her. They killed but her? Be, be, yeah, but because she was Oh my God, how'd they kill her? With, um, it was like a skirmish and she was like in the militia. She was a woman who was a really good, you know, at marksmanship. Wait, who was she fighting with? She was fighting with the, uh, the, the, the American patriots. And oh, okay. so she... Um, you Revolutionary War time. Yeah, the Revolutionary okay. War and the, time. And the English killed her. Yeah, they shot her. and there's evidence that the English did land, and <sighs> we're, we're always on the lookout for people who were, um, you she, know, rebel sympathizers, and she was among them. And she got was a killed. witch warrior. A witch warrior, exactly. Holy moly. Yeah, so she was pretty cool. But they, the Dutch folk in, you know, Sleepy Hollow, Schloppershaven, or Tarvi Town, my Dutch isn't that good, Tarvi Dorp, you know, Tarvi means wheat. That's where you brought the wheat and it became later Tarrytown. The Washington Irving says it was for the inveterate propensity of the farmers to linger at the taverns, prompting their wives to have given the community the name of Tarrytown. But be that as it may, I can't totally vouch for that. Washington Irving will go on. But Mother Hulda, again, may have been the one who, you know, put this spell upon the area. And when the Revolutionary War, you know, broke out, one of the early battles occurred at White Plains, and it was a large battle, largely described as kind of a draw, but it was highly significant because Washington managed to preserve his troops to fight another day. They then escaped into New Jersey, and he managed to continue to keep the army, which the British could have almost, you know, rounded up at White Plains and stopped the revolution a few months after the Declaration of Independence. And at the Battle of White Plains, um, there were many Hessian soldiers, you know, mercenaries, of course, hired by King George to help fight against these rebelling colonists. And at once, stories began to come forth that the Hessians, because they were trained professionals and they resented people who wanted to be governed without the sacred king, they were quite fierce. And in some situations, they probably didn't grant much mercy when American Minutemen, who were one minute a farmer, the next minute a fighter, threw open their arms, you know, out on 
Brooklyn at the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, and they, you know, may have stabbed them with their bayonet. And then, um, so stories began to rise when the Hessians and the British were coming into Westchester County that these were really vicious fighters. And, you know, they would give you Hessians quarter if you go to surrender, they'll stab you with their bayonet. And they looked different, too. They had um, very, you know, snappy-looking uniforms. They wore these big bearskin hats with brass plates across them. And some even were said to have had skulls and crossbones. And certain Hessian soldiers were in an elite group. You know, they were um, exceptionally tall. And they all sported long mustaches, you know, which, you know, you could fit right in, which they would curl or make two points. And at those times, the, you know, British settlers here, the Dutch, they were not wearing mustaches. Plus, they had very long queues. You know, the Americans, the regulation was your queue, your hair had to be 10 inches long and in a queue. But these guys, it was like two feet and down their back and, and they wore the straps. So a rumor went out that they had two sets of mouths, two rows of teeth. And if they foraged and didn't find the wheat and the dried meat they wanted, they would grab hold of children and would eat them. So when they came marching through, especially in places like a New Rochelle, the people would literally put out the home fires, which you never did during colonial times, even in the summer. So at the Battle of White Plains, here are all these farmer soldiers looking out and they see these Hessians with their, their brass plates gleaning, their bayonets, their cannon. And when they come, yeah, charging up um, Chatterton's Hill above what's now the White Plains train station, these poor guys were terrified. And, um, you know, but Washington kept them together. And then the British had a plan to attack at night, which was considered, you know, almost unethical. But they figured, oh, these Americans, they take pot shots at it from behind stone walls, guerrilla tactics. And so they were about to launch this attack right around Halloween, 1776. And a thunderstorm comes and prevents them from doing it. So the, early the next morning, the British send out a reconnaissance of of Hessians to try to find out where do the Americans have their cannon. They don't have very many, but they have some. And they find one near what's now Silver Lake, then called, you know, Merritt's Hill. And there's a Lieutenant Fenno who may have been under the command of Alexander Hamilton, um, who was an artillery officer at the Battle of White Plains. Um, so they, this, this British, you know, uh, probably an officer is riding his horse to try to see where the Americans are and to maybe flank them. And as he's coming round, the Americans through the rainstorm have kept their powder dry and boom, a shot gets fired. And later, when General William Heath writes his journal, no doubt that Washington Irving read, he reports a Hessian artilleryman lost his head and his horse at the Battle of, of White Plains. And that's the smoking cannon, the origin story of the Headless Horseman. Because if you can imagine these farm boys who have never seen 
you know, you know, maybe settlers from Pennsylvania, let alone Hessians with their uniforms, seeing someone getting their head blown off, it would have made an indelible impression. And they would have told it in all the taverns. And then years later, when Washington Irving comes, like you do, wandering through the Hudson um, Valley into the Hudson Highlands, he hears this story of this decapitated warrior, maybe in the tavern, maybe from his uh, guide who's half native, most likely from a probably a runaway slave at Carl's Mill, that this, this spirit is out there. And um, finally, the, though the headless horseman fell at the Battle of White Plains, there's evidence that the Hessians, that the bodies weren't always buried right away. In the journal of Joseph Plum Martin, who was at the Battle of White Plains, he reports, um, you know, Hessians getting killed, but when he comes back months later, the bodies are still there. And so it's possible the family... Van Tassel's found the body of this fallen Hessian and to return a favor said to have been one where Hessians were ordered by the British to burn down the house of a rebel and there was a little baby left inside and one of the Hessians ran in and rescued the baby and gave it to the mother. The family of the mother may have happened upon the decapitated Hessian's body and brought it to the old Dutch church and begged to the the dominie, the minister there, to have the body buried. But kind of like with Mother Hulda, they were like, well, I guess we can bury it, but we're not sure this person was a Christian, so they don't get a marker. So the Hessian's body was put to rest, but by those spells of Sleepy Hollow uh, and the spirit of the headless horseman rises up, seeking that missing head as if it can't go to the next life in this incomplete form. And, you know, people, as I tell the legend at the old Dutch church over the years, report um, either hearing or at least sensing this spirit. There's even, you know, little pages on Facebook of people who have reported seeing the headless horseman or at least sensing it or hearing a horse near the Sleepy Hollow Golf Course, near the Picantico River, um, personally, I've not, you know, actually seen the apparition, but I certainly have felt a deep sense of the presence of this spirit, something melancholic in the air and in the mists when I've gone to the church time after time to, you know, to tell the story. And again, many people have come and said they've And you do something. your performances... In the church. Yes, in the... And that, ch- that church was built in the 1600s? Yes, 1685. They began building it, the Phillips family. And you do like, it's like 50 every Halloween season, you do like 50 performances Almost, or Almost, yeah. Um, wow. It's just an amazing You're in run. it. And that's what I'm I was immersed saying, in it, That's yeah. what I was saying about that waterfall. Like, you are in it. You're yes. telling the story in the place. Yes, in the actual place. Um, we... And, um, and, and so... Yeah. So just for anyone who's not too familiar with the story. Washington Irving is the author of Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yes. Van Tassel is the female character in yes. the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is, you were talking about the historical yeah. version. And the historical version, her great... So I have a friend who her last name is Van Tassel. And there's a gravestone at that church that yes. says Van Tassel. Yes, a few. 
Yeah, well, the um, it says Katrina Van Tassel, and he pro- Washington Irving probably can you just used, for the audience, y- yeah, um, give uh, the dates for when Washington Irving was alive. Yeah, he he was born um, at the the very end of the American Revolution, seventeen eighty three, when you know peace was really signed and therefore named after George Washington, and he died in eighteen fifty nine, right before the American Civil War. And we we were just watching a documentary about him last night. He's yeah. like considered maybe like the first great yes. American author. Indeed. He's who inspired Edgar Allan Poe yes. and so many authors. Charles Dickens, exactly. James Fenimore Cooper. Yeah, he was like the, indeed the first, the first um, American to become famous as an author. And mm. he began his fame with the, um, with um, what was called Dietrich Knickerbocker's History of Old New York, kind of a satirical I heard that, satire yeah. of the Dutch days. And he, that was in, 1809, and it caught the attention of Sir Walter Scott when Washington Irving was living in in Great Britain. And then there, Irving began to write the sketchbook, and one of the stories was um, a little story kind of concerning the Van Tassel family during the Revolution and this feisty young woman with her aunts who fight off some American loyalists who were trying to abduct her for a ransom. And that feistiness is what Washington Irving puts into his most famous story, not Rip Van Winkle, which is a wonderful tale, but The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He began writing it in 1819, and it came out in 1820 in England and then here in the States. And that is what really launched American literature. And I so and I saw that in the cuz you've been on National Geographic, you've been on BBC yeah. and the History Channel discussing what right, we're talking this, about right these now. Very things. And the, um and so it was saying that Washington Irving probably got the name from the tombstone? He he did, but also he um probably got it because Van Tassel was a very common last name and okay. it was kind of it was there was an island in the Netherlands, Texel mm. or something. And it was kind of where like maybe the, the the real simple farm folk came from. So he was just kind of give, trying to give a generic name. But there was a Van Tassel family who was reported to have, you know, had that headless Hessian's body buried at the old Dutch church. And there's been some recent, you know, documentation of that. Uh, Chris Redino, an author, mm. Um, traced down the headless horseman and does indeed have a name for him, but that's another story. I saw in the documentary about Washington Irving. So the Dutch um, colonists that were here, they said they were farmers, fishermen, and trappers. Yes, you, and I'm kind of interested in fur trapping. We do a little bit. We eat the meat. We I save the um, fat. Like I, my boots right now, I put uh, raccoon fat on them. Wow. Yeah, that's the to best preserve from yeah. the rain. And uh, you know, we cook with beaver fat. And so I find mm. all this stuff really interesting. I find it interesting engaging with history that way. Um, so what c- critters were they trapping up here? Well, in beavers? Primarily beaver for economic reason, yeah. but also mink. Like ah. the very first letter, um, and this is traces the origin of the story that Manhattan was purchased from the natives for $24, <sighs> which is, um, you know, a real, you know, fabrication of what, truly happened. But in this Mm. particular letter that Peter Shagan wrote to the company, he said that um, they purchased Manhattan Island for for 60 guilders in goods, which in the 1880s, when the story came out, was roughly $24. But Mm. the goods were like high-tech goods for the native people, you know, 
metal knives, mm. metal pots and pans. This is 1625. Mm. So, and the natives thought they were just really renting the land out, mm. and they didn't move off of the land right away. But um, it says in that letter that they were trapping primarily beaver, but they got otter, muskrat, mm. mink. And this place just abounded with animals, you know, bear, moose, there were wolves, moose. there were, you know, mountain lions mm. here, um, bobcat, lynx. Mm. Um, so all of those animals were in great abundance. Mm. And the land, you know, was quite a bit different. There were more fields mm. where the natives could yes. grow uh, the three sisters, corn, bean, and squash, more fields for various herbs to grow. They would let the landscape burn from time to time to mm-hmm. encourage the growth of these different crops. It wasn't now, you know, because of the end of farming, you know, 80, 90 years ago, you know, there's the trees have all grown up and they're beautiful, but there were, were far more open fields here in the highlands. Though in the higher elevations, the, the, it wasn't that much farming. It was more dairy and sheep raising. And that and firewood was a huge industry here too to support that West of Point course. foundry that made all mm. the cannon during the American Civil War and helped launch the Industrial Revolution, you know, with the assembly lines that they established. When you talk about um, Manhattan, because I yeah. lived in Brooklyn for 10 years, when you talk about Manhattan, and I believe it was like a very important fishing region yes. for the native tribes. Yeah. I have thought many times in New York, when I would be like at a rooftop party or by myself on the rooftop, and I would stand on the roof and look at Manhattan, this like psychedelic, like technological landscape. Yeah. And I would think if I were a Native American and I had a vision, if I was a Native American from like 600 years ago, 700 years ago, and I had a vision of this, like this is unfathomable. Like to see this like city of light covered towers. Yeah. If you had a vision of the future of like that, it would just be like, what is this? Oh, it would have been utterly mind blowing. <laughs> I mean, some of their, there are some stories told from the native perspective when they uh, first saw the ships coming in, the, mm. the sloops or the mm-hmm. sailing vessels with their huge sails and their big, big bows. They thought that these were, you know, something mystical or magical mm. it just was beyond it's comprehension like a UFO. it's like a yeah, ufo like a U- exactly i just exactly. said that on the last podcast yeah. with the nanticoke guest right you know uh and i said um what was the native perspective it must have been like aliens showing yeah. up and he actually said that there is um, an indigenous author who uh, wrote a book about pocahontas and the tribes there and she does refer to the you know colonists as being like an alien yeah, they which I think is definitely were because, you know, you have to recall, and I often tell this when I'm working with school kids, we see pictures of people from all over the world, but back then they didn't have it. So if you of saw course. someone with blue eyes, you would have been, and you never, or it'd be like seeing someone with, you know, with, um, you know, say some with rainbow eyes, something that's completely mind blowing, mind blowing, yeah. and, and white skins, it, it, and and different colored hair, clothes. Yeah. You would have thought these are aliens, you yeah. know, and yeah. you know, and that's what again is reflected in the story of you know the Henry Hudson, the the, the Manteo's fall tale. Incredible, yeah. So, do you have any stories of your personal experiences 
with lore, with the paranormal, with, you know, Mother Nature, have you had any bizarre experiences of your own in this general uh, area? Well, or and, and I saw, and feel free to chime in on this, I saw you're actually from Texas or New Mexico? Well, well or? I was born in Texas. Okay. But um, I was um, what you call, you know, an army brat. My father was an army oh. officer. So I just lived there for a few months, really. But I did get a certificate from a local bank saying, because I was born in Texas, I could practice the fine art of telling the tall tale. And indeed, I I do that. You know, there are, although... So even as a kid, you were just uh, enamored by these stories? I, I was, not as not as much as, um, I guess you would think. I, I, I did hear stories, for example, as a little kid about uh, when you would hear the thunder around here, and it's kind of got a unique kind of muffled sound. And that's why you have a lot of thunder-related, you know, place names, like Dunderberg means Thunder Mountain, the Timp Mountain, again, across the river in Rockland and Orange, refers to the way the thunder sounds like a timpani. Pinjip Mountain is from the way the rain and all would kind of re- reverberate. Then there's Storm King Mountain, and on it goes. So that I was aware of. But um, it, it the, the, mis- the, the mystery, I guess, the... I, I, you know, I, I haven't had many direct experiences that many people have described where they've, you know, seen a ghost. I, I was visiting, for example, my family in California and my cousin said, oh, it seemed like someone sat on the edge of my bed last night. I haven't had that experience, but I have had a deep um, sense of a presence of these, you know, native or even, you know, colonial uh you know, people who have gone before and have shaped the landscape quite literally with building the stone walls, felling the trees, you know, um, just making their mark on the landscape. And sometimes when I pause there, I fill with this deep sense of wonder, studying an old stone wall, imagining these gnarled hands throwing the stones together, puzzling them together. And I um, become just deeply moved by their labor, their effort to, to do this. And now um, here's this legacy deep in the woods, you know, marking out um, their means of survival. Mm. There's, um, they're really, I, the, 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 the ghost story I, that I share concerns another denizen of the, well, of these highlands or a little south and in Connecticut, known as the Wandering Leatherman. Uh, he was a figure who, from about, you know, before the Civil War until 1889, was seen wandering clad in 60 pounds of hand-hewn leather, um, and he would sleep in caves, would beg for food, rarely spoke, um, never really worked, but intrigued everyone. And so stories abounded and were eventually even put in all of the papers, even in New York City, that he was a murderer, or he was heartbroken, or he hid treasures in these caves. The story provokes just endless interest 
When the Leatherman died, for example, in 1889, all six major New York City newspapers ran his obituary on the front page, and we still don't know to this day what his name was. It's suspected from research done, a fellow by the name of DeLuca compiled an exhaustive uh, you know, archive of newspaper clippings that he probably was a French Canadian. He may have been, as we describe today, someone on the spectrum who wandered each night. He, he wandered a, every month he would wander a 300 and about a 365 mile circuit, walking eight to 12 miles a day, sleeping primarily in caves that he would set for himself between the Connecticut and the Hudson River. A third of his places were in Connecticut, a third were here. And um, I, years ago, went to find his grave at the Sparta Cemetery in New York, kind of at the southern, you know, very southern edge of the, what's called the Highlands. It's really the Hudson Valley. It's near Ossining, New York. And I went on a sultry summer day and wandered around the entire cemetery. And it's historic. There's some grave markers where British cannon had fired and taken off pieces of the stone in the cemetery. And it's, you know, there's wonderful monuments, some toppled, some standing there. And, and it's, it's very, um, it's got some peculiar shaped hills. And as I was wandering, looking for the grave, I got a little bit spooked because I saw what I thought was a dead baby, but it was just a little cherub that had fallen off of its marker. And I had just become a father at that point, and it just frightened me as twilight, you know, that betwixt and between time that folks used to call it the gloaming was coming upon. And I, I turned around to go back to my car, which was parked. It's right off of Route 9, a kind of busy road, the old Albany Post Road um, there. And I saw a, a, someone else in the, in the cemetery, a, you know, kind of a youngish woman wearing um, like a, a dress, you know, like it looked like I, I thought, thought something out of the Laura Ashley catalog, you know, kind of ankle length, very pretty. And she had a little parasol to keep herself out of the sun. And I know some women, you know, even today you might carry a parasol. So I thought, oh, this is quaint. I won't run up to her and say, where's the Leatherman's grave? Which is what I wanted to do. I'll let her walk to the other side of this little hill and I'll kind of let her see me coming and I'll, you know, just say hello. Do you know this place? So as I was approaching to meet her on the other side of the hill, she vanished. And there was no way that she could have gone down and clambered over the bramble between the cemetery and Route 9. She didn't, there was no car there was no other place she could... I mean, it was a matter of seconds between when I saw her pass behind the hill and when she should have come out on the other side. And I was, you know, just awestruck and only wanted to get out of there. So I got into my car and was questioning, what was I seeing? Was I probing too long in this place? Was I letting my imagination run amok here? And I'm sitting in my car trying to leave the cemetery, anxious to get out. There's a lot of traffic on Route 9. And it's like a little dirt pull-off. And I notice in my peripheral vision to my right some kind of what I thought was a figure. And at once I'm thinking of those horror movies where 
when you go to look, you'll see this distorted, distended face with flesh falling from the skull or something horrific. And I didn't want to look, but of course, just as you do in these films, you, you know, you're inexorably pulled over there. And I turned and looked and I thought I would see this horrific melted face, but there I saw the leather man's marker right at the very entranceway in this kind of innocuous place. And so it was as if, to me, the spirit of that woman directed me to what I originally wanted to find, which was the leather man's marker. It's been since taken down, and there's a different marker there, but it it kind of gave me a sense of... Um, I don't know, closure. I'd been telling the story of the leather man for years and years and never visited his gravesite. I'd been to some of his caves and and all. So it was, you know, a little honor really to get that. And that was really the one time that I've more directly experienced a spirit. And even now, picturing that woman walking by, um, I still question, did I really see someone? Did I see anything at all? It just leaves you in that altered state. So incredible. Thank you. (laughs) So incredible. Um, What a character. Yeah. Um, You know, I mentioned in the last podcast, one of my all-time favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. And The Leatherman sounds like a Cormac McCarthy character. Yes. Just kind of like this mysterious, outlaw-ish kind of guy who's on the outskirts of society. Cormac McCarthy has a book, I think, called Outer Dark. I think that's the one. And um, it's about a tinker. And a tinkers were kind of like that back in the day. They were just these like nomadic... Um, loners who travel around with a cart of things that they sell, yeah. but you know, like kind of like bizarre character. But that's an, an that's an incredible story, an incredible book. And when I hear you tell it, it it's so fascinating because um, I don't know if maybe I'm thankful for this. Crossing fingers. I mean, as a kid, there was nothing I wanted to happen less than see a ghost or see an alien. Right. It's just too scary. Yes. And um, in my twenties, I had a ton of ghost experiences. Uh, I've never had a, and I'm, I think I'm thankful. I don't want to probe. You know, I feel it's very, as we were talking about tipping your hat to mother nature, I think there's also an equal respect one needs to have with the mysterious. Yes. With the, you know, I'm very into Carl Jung and Jungian psychology. Yes, I am as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So, you know, you need to be very careful in uh, approaching the unconscious, approaching Mm. the mysteries you know, because they can fry you in five seconds. Yes, and so intense. you know, even with you know Jung's thoughts on psychedelics, even is that um, to be wary of wisdom you didn't earn. So, you know, and dealing with any big mystery, uh, you know, you can get fried. Like I said, so I'm kind of thankful I haven't seen too much. But I've, when I have ghost experiences, it's funny how different people experience things. Like you had a full visual. Like I'm assuming you yeah. saw it like day. You saw it normal. Yeah, she seemed to be. I mean, it was just fleeting, but it mm-hmm. seemed. I thought it was a person. Like my experiences have have been their body sensations. Yeah, like pushing on me and my hair standing up. Wow, and feeling something pushing all over me, super mm. intense, hard, and and uh, emotion. 
is usually what it is. My sister and I have had a lot of ghost experiences together and, and like tears, crying, sorrow. It's uh-huh. like a hyper, almost archetypal level of emotion hitting us. Um, anyway, so fascinating. Can I tell you a spooky story oh, for I'd be here? honored, yes. Oh my God. So I won't give away the location just because to be respectful for the spot. Sure. Um, like I told you, I filmed all over the Hudson River Valley. I found this graveyard not too far from here that isn't like, it's like an abandoned graveyard of a church in a patch of woods in a neighborhood. And the tombstones are all broken up. They've all fallen over. Um, It's it's abandoned. It's a mess back there. And um, I've been there recently and I've seen that there is actually, now they, they started putting like an apartment complex that you can see through the woods. But when I went there, even though you're quite near a neighborhood, um, you couldn't see it. You would enter this little few acres of woods and you were kind of isolated in this area. So I've done a music video back in there and um, uh, I've taken friends there to go look. And there's actually an open, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like an open crypt. Wow. Like there are these, there's like three crypts or something, mausoleums. I don't know what the right word is, but the doors are broken open and um, you can go in them. And what's really creepy is that like clearly people are doing some kind of like ceremonial type stuff in there ah. because there'll be like a plastic chair inside of there and like candles with, with melted wax all over the wall. So c- clearly people are doing dark arts, who knows what, some kind of satanic right. ritual. But I've gone into those little chambers and you would go in there and there'd be a chair, there'd be candles and there'd be a stone, like a, a slab from the mausoleum that has bones all over it. Oh, And the crypt is broken open. And I was like, these, I was like, this can't be real. These must be animal bones. Right. And I'm look, and then I'm like looking at these bones and I'm like, well, that's a human jaw and it's a small human jaw. Mm. So I'm looking at a kid's jaw and, you know, now as a hunter, I know my animal bones. Sure. That was a human jaw. I've got photographs of it. So very bizarre. That, that event was middle of the daylight. Years later, I'm with some friends in Cold Spring they, um, uh, I say, hey, twilight's coming. Why don't you two go back to Manhattan? I'm going to go a few stops away and I want to take some photographs. At the time I was doing these long exposure photographs where I would set up um, a tripod and, you know, I would, you know, hit the exposure. It's the camera apertures open for like a minute and I would recreate ghost images. So I would uh, either have actresses or friends dress up like in all white or whatever. And I would do these extremely haunting like ghost imagery. So I'm by myself at this graveyard in the woods, twilight is coming. And I spend maybe 45 minutes in there by myself, um, just out amongst the tombstones, trying to capture these ghostly images of myself. I have no weird vibes. You know, I usually am quite susceptible and I can feel things intensely. I don't feel anything weird. I'm taking my photographs. They didn't turn out all that great. Sometimes with the long exposure, they're not the best photographs. Um, it's kind of hit or miss. So I finish up and I start heading out and now it is really twilight. I mean, it's almost dark. And as I'm walking out of that little cemetery, I just have this feeling like you were talking about with the Leatherman's um, marker. And I just felt like turn and look behind you. And I look behind me and I look into the blackness of one of those broken open crypts. Yeah. And there's a light. There's a Ah. little flame 
wobbling. Curious. Either a candlelight, and I was so effing scared. Yes. I ran out of there, mm. terrified. Now, my, you know, I don't know, like you, it's not my imagination. There was a little flickering light, yeah. and I turned and looked at it twice. Now, you know, you jump into ghost stuff for sure. What scares me even more is that some goddamn weirdo was sitting in that crypt the entire time I'm taking my photographs in the was graveyard. There. Maybe there was the same kind of people that go there and do these weird rituals with the fucking bones yeah. that some weirdo, I mean, it would be nice if it's two teenagers having fun, but right. maybe there's some weirdo like sitting in there watching me for like 45 minutes wow. and it was his lighter or his candle, but it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, that's really Really frightening. frightening. Yeah, it... um. What a remarkable story. And I could see where, you know, that would be just terrifying. I was Especially so this odd person who is kind of trying to, you know, glom on, you know, the, the kind of, the, the mystery of that place. It, it does just um, very briefly remind me of um, a story from a little bit north that is reminiscent of the Headless Horseman, mm. where... Um, it's called the Horseman of Leeds. Mm. And there was a, a farmer around the end of colonial times who had a servant or a slave and she disobeyed. I'm just doing kind of a bare bones version. Disobeyed him and he, to make kind of an example of her in front of kind of the townsfolk, tied her, uh, put a rope around her and got on his horse and put the rope on the end of the pummel of his saddle and began to head back. And the horse got startled and she got dragged to her doom. And he was later, through a circuit judge, uh, sentenced to, um, to die from hanging. But because it was kind of an inadvertent uh, involuntary manslaughter, he was assigned to wear a silken noose, which he wore his entire life. And he was kind of cursed with a long... Uh, a ghost-filled life, this woman came back to haunt him. And one aspect of her spirit uh, it was her fingers consisted of flames, like they would were there to one day reach out to kind of gather up his spirit. And so we would always see these flaming fingertips kind of coming his way. Um, so who knows if, you know, you're weirdo in the mausoleum was trying to reflect that but oh my god um, that's an but, awesome story yeah that it's there the, the, this region well that's just also abounds. just a great like we've been saying the um the the wisdom in the folktales like that's the wisdom that your actions yeah. your actions here on earth right they will haunt you exactly and that's there's um one of my favorite books concerning the hudson highlands and really more not the highlands really about ghosts it was mm -hmm. written by a woman named um, Richardson. And she contends that there are so many ghosts here in the Hudson Valley because there's ghosts are almost wanting to tell the history here. Mm. And it can get told through ghost stories. And so it's almost like a, in the Jungian sense, like a collective Unconscious. un consciousness that... Um, spreads the ghost stories because we're remembering the history of the native folk, the Dutch, mm. the English, the revolution, the mm. industrial, all these different things that occurred. And even though they get layered over by, as you said, 
an apartment complex going up near this abandoned churchyard or mm -hmm. new people moving in who know nothing about mm -hmm. the, the landscape. The ghosts then kind of like mm -hmm. water rise up through the surface and continue to remind us of what went on before. And that again is what I sense um, when I go hiking or even just driving, um, visiting through the highlands and the Hudson Valley. Now, as you're saying that, as I've told you, I've been walking around these mountains for 10 years while living in New York. My girlfriend and I have gone, last time we came up to New York, we also stayed somewhere in the Hudson and we went for a walk. Yeah. I've all, and now, because you don't know too much about me, I live in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Yeah. We live m m this isolated, if not more, than this Airbnb that we're recording. Right. And, uh, you know, you don't see a single light at night. Right. Um, I feel fine where I live. I've always felt like this region is haunted. Ah. Like you, and it's not like terrifying. It's just when you walk around, there's a, and my girlfriend has felt it too, here in the Hudson River Valley. There's a feeling here that has a haunted feeling that I don't feel in the woods down in Virginia. And you're saying it right yeah. now. So I just wanted to comment on top of what you're saying. Yeah, There's well, something. There is, again, something. I think many people do sense that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's um, remarkable because the, uh, the, the ghostliness is entwined with the beauty here, mm. it, that the two go mm. hand in hand. And Man, well, you're speaking to my soul because <laughs> me and my girlfriend, in our hearts, we're gothic and very, you know, every one of these podcasts ends up talking about ghosts or, to, or gravestones. So yeah, it's a, it's, as, as you mentioned before, a melancholy, just a, yeah, like almost like Southern Gothic, even though we're in the North. It, it is. And that's the thing that I think sometimes I, you know, as a professional storyteller and with it interested in, in the region's history, you know, feel where I want, I'm almost like in competition with parts of the South to say, Ooh. you know, yes, you may have, you know, um, wonderful tales coming out of Louisiana or mm. the little islands off the coast, the Gullah Islands off the coast of Georgia or mm. parts of Virginia, you know, where the Southern accent is strongest. Mm. But this region really abounds, as Washington Irving says, with spirits. It has, um, I think, more than its fair share of, um, of you know, again, supernatural mm. things. I mean, there's um, also you know, UFO stories from the mm. 80s from around here um, and, uh, you know, fairy stories mm. of fairies. Joseph Rodman Drake, a famous or writer, didn't live all that long, wrote The Culprit Fay about, a, you know, the fairies who abound in these, again, the highlands too. So, there's um, so when much I've, here to be mined. Some of my favorite, I mean, it's hard for me to say favorite because I'm about to tell you this is one of my favorites. Like there, I love all these episodes and some of the really cool ones are with these very powerful herbalist women that yeah. I'm friends and acquaintance with down in Virginia. And I, I look forward to doing more with, with herbalists. Um, they've told me wild stories about fairies and yeah. they talk about it like y y even, they talk about it more normal than how you talked about that woman, that ghostly right. woman. That Mother like, Holda, yeah. Yeah, it's just completely normal to them. Yeah. That and they'll say that they see them. I mean, I've yeah. had an herbalist who's one of my friends, um, a very, very powerful woman and um, very mysterious, has a very rich inner world. But she just said on the podcast, like there's a gnome right there while we're recording. There's yeah. a, do you see the gnome? I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. And I think it's incredible that you do. And, I, yeah. and I'm fascinated by all this. Well, they are really 
fascinating. And the native people, of course, had little people. Again, to go back, a little story from my mentor when he... You, so you had a storytelling mentor? Yeah. Well, really for my, my work, um, he booked me for my earliest mm. engagements. But he, would dis- he described how he had uh, a film crew... He, he was the ranger over at um, a place called Pound Ridge Reservation. It's mm. the largest park in Westchester County, 4,000 mm. acres. And they were trying to film, but there was this, again, kind of a disrespectful sound engineer guy. And he would, you know, bring his equipment out to the woods where they were going to record. And it suddenly would stop working. He'd bring it back to the little museum and it would be fine then he'd bring it out and it wouldn't work mm. and there were some native elders there and they said oh this is the work of little people do you see yeah. them over sense them over here there you know once mm. you show a little bit more respect they'll let you let your electronic equipment work <laughs> and the native wow. elders they you know again like your herbalists yes there they it was just as natural as yes. our conversation to yes. say they're yes. they're over as here as these trees as these, real as yeah. these trees that we're sitting next yeah. to these plants here these yeah. briars it's that, God, yeah. incredible. Wow. Well, I know you've got to go in a second. To wrap it up, yeah. do you want to just talk about your two books that um, I'm buying from you here? Yeah, thank God, you. God, these um, are exciting. I'm, I'm, these were published by the History Press. One is called Legends and, Legends and Lore of Sleepy Hollow in the Hudson Valley. And it gives the, the background stories to the various ghosts all mentioned in the legend of Sleepy Hollow, some of whom I've touched upon mm-hmm. today, Mother Hulda, the imps, there's Major Andre's ghost, the Wailing Woman in White, and of course, the origin story of the Headless Horseman. The other book, um, Legends and Lore of the Hudson Highlands, shows how these highlands here nurtured those four revolutions in um, independence, industry, art, and the environment. Mm-hmm. And there's about 70 or 80 stories, um, some ghostly, some historic uh, that all relate to those revolutions. So it's a mix of. Um, so you must have had to do a ton of research for these I things. did a ton of research, but it's not, I'm not a professional mm-hmm. PhD, a scholar, mm-hmm. if you will, but I tried to be as scholarly as possible and bring forth the stories, but to put them in a way that it wouldn't be the way it is in those guidebooks where there's three little sentences, and also it wouldn't be you know, too, too exhaustive of yeah. an boring explanation that gets boring or, mm-hmm. or too esoteric. And, and you can get them, the best way to get them really, is your you can get them on, yes, my website is best. It's just jonathancruck.com. They're, they are available on Amazon, but honestly, I, you know, I earn more if I sell them directly to people. And if people order them through me, I can send them a, cop, a signed copy of the book. Awesome. Too. And if someone's in the area for late September, October, yes, they can come see you do the yes. Sleepy Hollow Storytelling? Yes, if they, they can visit my website, but the tickets are available through Historic Hudson Valley. Historic Hudson Valley. Okay. Um, they're the not-for-profit that sponsors my shows. And this year, 2021, my shows, because of COVID and oh. other reasons, are being moved from the old Dutch church, which does break my heart. Yes. But at least we're going to be doing it at Sunnyside, Washington Irving's oh. homestead. Oh, that's just it, as good. It, it'll be really enchanting. And we're, we're planning some 
surprises and, and you, so twists it's going to be outdoors. It'll be outdoors. Yes. Wow. So and uh, anyone who hasn't visited this area, there are so many incredible historical yeah. homes. One of which is Washington Irving's little whimsical cottage. Yes. It's it's right on the water. Yes. And it's covered in ivy. And Indeed. It is gorgeous. It's a wonderful, enchanting. Well, place. that's awesome that you're doing it there. I don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, every weekend in October, and again, are these always sold out when they were in the they church? They usually, yeah, they've um, they often um, they sell out sometimes before the run begins, which is October first or second. Every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we do three evening shows, and I have a a live you know musician, and there's going to be some special surprises as well. The period costume, it's wonderful. Yes, period costume, yes. exactly. So I did want to say this before we wrap it up. Um, and you didn't do it too much here, um, but I saw when you do your storytelling presentations uh, or um, yeah. the event, um, there's a very animated style. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to ask a little bit about that style because I started talking to um, this incredible older lady, um, Judy Byers. I talked to her on the phone. She's a student of the extremely famous... Uh, West Virginia folklorist from the 1900s called Ruth Ann Music. Ruth Ann Music went around in these back hollows, hollers is yeah, how you say it. Yeah, hollers, as yeah, they say they, there. They would go through all these hollers and collect people's stories. Yeah. And Judy was a student of this woman. But when Judy does her storytelling, and she hopefully she's going to do a podcast at some point, we talked on the phone for a while, there's a, very, there's a style to the storytelling. Yeah. And I see that you, in your events, do have a, there's a style to it. Is, where, where does the tradition of that, is there a tradition of this type of storytelling? I think much of it, frankly, is just my own okay. um, storytelling persona kind of taking persona. over and trying to deliver, you know, to take you as the words once upon a time, happily ever after do, they lift you out of this time and put you into mm. a, a timeless time, a place when wishing worked, when mm. you know children went to bed on time, when wishing magic was, does work. Yes, I've it does messed indeed. around with the occult a little bit. Yeah, and I've done it does work. Like two, I've <laughs> done like two sigils and a spell. It works so well that I'm not doing it anymore. Ah, wow. <laughs> well, that's what the, that's what I try to work on with my my voice, and you know, I've been compared to, um, you know, like everyone from like a Vigo. Mortenston meets mm. Robin Williams. Kind oh, of I see that animated. The Robin style, Williams is the more animated, animated style, style. Mm -hmm. and, but also um, it's just sometimes I just try to enunciate my words a little mm. more clearly when I'm mm. performing and take on the characters. I'm still not an actor; I'm really a storyteller. But when I do solo shows like The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and really my favorite story to tell is in a solo show is A Christmas Carol. I do take on their their voices but again it's still within the realm of storytelling and not something scripted that's always close to the same words as you would get with you know an actor do you make your full-time living as a storyteller i do yeah Incredible. for 30 years congratulations schools parks libraries history, congratulations sites Incredible. all manner of places so you're an, you're a modern day orator yes a modern day raconteur yes. or really um again a a, you know, a storyteller. It's been a true calling and a blessing to so have cool. this be my 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 life's work. Hey, maybe the last few minutes of this episode. How how have you been interested in Carl Jung, and how is that um, how has that played into your life or into your storytelling, etc.? Well, it 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 you know I I learned of Jung you know Jung when I was in college and 
read, you know, various works, but really Mm. it was just about the concept that appealed to me of this great collective unconsciousness Mm -hmm. that's in all human beings, certain yearnings that appears in all of our stories, universal themes, Mm -hmm. whether it's feeling like Cinderella that we're overworked and underappreciated and one day, um, you know, this great blessing is going to come in to the hero's quest where mm. something happens when you're a youth and there's something that's disrupted your life and you're forced into the situation where you have to take charge. And as you proceed, magical helpers appear. Those icons are all there. And Archetypal stories. Yeah, arch- and they're there. And, and even the story you just, the very intro story yeah. about the, um, the sleeping giant, the native yeah. story. I mean- you could say that how similar to the biblical flood story. Exactly. There, these flood themes are throughout. They're myth. universal. They're yeah. Universal. And they're about, you know, showing respect, tipping your hat, as we said. And I have um, for a time gone through, you know, Jungian analysis myself to really? help delve into my own uh, dreams and to see what messages my psyche is delivering. So I'm. I've been in analysis for like seven or eight years. I've. Every Almost week. the same for me. Wow, are you yeah. in it right now? Yeah, in fact, that's where I have to go after. No way! <laughs> wow. This so recording for the yes. people listening who don't know very much about yeah. it, we are we go to dream analysis. Yeah, it, a large part of it is dream analysis. Yeah, and me. then a lot of it is just yeah. like life and synchronicities. Yeah. Oh synchronicities yeah, synchronicities in life. Yeah, it's a big part of it, and I often work with the analyst to use figures from stories. Like I'm trying personally to be less like an Ichabod Crane who is limber as a supplejack, who's too, you know, pleasing and appeasing to people. I'm mm. trying to be more... Uh, Fierce you know, warrior. Firm, a little... Yes, exactly. The witch warrior. Hulga. Yes, exactly. So, Damn. Um, all of that's, you know, comes out... Um, yeah, I, the Jungian analysis on my end is really... My... Curtis is the name of my uh, analyst. I want to have him on the podcast at some point. He doesn't live here. We do it on um, Skype now. Yeah. But we used to do it in New York City. Right. Um, but it has totally transformed my life. I yeah. mean, um, I was struggling trying to be may have a film career in New York City that wasn't working. I started, um, he would ask me to draw my dreams so uh. that he could better understand what the scenes in the dreams. And then I started drawing again. I stopped drawing. Wow. I stopped drawing when I was like a teenager because I was never formally trained. I thought I sucked. My father stopped drawing when he was a teenager. Oh. Which, and um, I picked that torch back up and that's how I make my money. I'm an illustrator. Wow. And so, uh, no formal training. I, I, you know, every other day I'm like, God, I suck at drawing. But, you know, you just keep going. Yes. And, um, God, yeah, the Jungian stuff is very powerful. It is, indeed. Wow. Cool, man. (laughs) Good connection for us there. Well, you've got to go to your Jungian analysis. I've got to go, yes. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. 